and welcome back to Your Fave Film Critic, the podcast hosted by me, your favorite film critic, Tom Griffin. We're seven episodes in now. If I'm not your favorite and someone else is, you need to go listen to their podcast. It's like, you're not loyal. I know we don't, we don't like no loyalty around here. Uh, if you guys noticed this week, I put a new video on the channel about what a movie ticket should cost, about the relative value of of going to the movies uh, in 2023 and um the video got a little bit off the rails uh from what i originally intended it to be it ended up being very emotional for me and i didn't really anticipate that so if you watched the video and you thought it was kind of weird you know you're not wrong um but probably more so than any episode of the pod so far since like the first episode this this episode is sort of like an extension of that video um, much the way the pilot was sort of me like going into the Barbenheimer stuff after having done a video and reviewed it. Uh, this is very much expanded from this, the narrative of that video. So if you haven't seen that video yet, I do think you should check it out. It would be a, a good idea to have seen it. Um, but you can watch it like whenever it's cool. You do you, man. <laughs> but, uh, uh, in that video, I mentioned that I spent my entire, I took three days off of work, uh, to try to like take a break and like rest and recharge. It did not fucking work at all. The second I got back to work, everything went. Anyway, I took three days off and um, I'm really bad at making plans with friends and things like that. So I just ended up watching movies like the whole fucking time. So uh, the what I watched this week section of the pod is going to be like the main event this week because I, I watched like 10 movies and I'm going to talk about all of them. I'm going to go deep. So this episode might get a little long. Uh, as a result, my intention was to just completely skip the news part of the pod this week. Cause like nothing had been going on in the news that I had any opinions about. And then, uh, in like the last 48 hours, like three pretty big things happened, two very big things happened. And then like, one thing that's like not, not on the same level as the other two things, but also is like worth talking about, I suppose. And, um, the first is that uh, some of this is going to be like big wrestling stuff again. So if you follow the pod, but you don't like wrestling and it's a weird thing that I'm into it to you, I apologize. But uh, Terry Funk died uh, two days ago. Terry Funk, one of the most legendary professional wrestlers to ever live. Like, uh, even if you don't know him from his wrestling work, you may have seen him in the film Roadhouse. He was in uh, two big Sly Stallone movies, Paradise Alley and um, Over the Top. Over the top is the arm wrestling movie, if you don't remember. And uh, he passed away. I mean, he he lived in his late 70s. He had so many careers within his career. Like, you know, he started out, you know, his, his, his like, he comes from, like, the Funk family, like, this legendary Texas wrestling family. And, you know, he spent years as, like, NWA champion. He, you know, he had these, this, you know, maybe some of the best matches with Ric Flair ever. Like, in, in like, the prime of Ric Flair's career, he was, like remarkable and then he had this huge career in japan too like one of the most popular gaijin wrestlers in japan and then in the 90s he helped put ecw on the map like the man's been he's a legend he's terry's a wrestler where like me personally i am not like specifically a fan of terry funk it's not like i like uh have like a million favorite terry funk matches or grew up watching terry like I, I, we all grew up watching terry funk in some fashion but uh in my opinion, his passing was really sad. Obviously, all like death is sad, but it felt kind of—I don't know how to word this, not sound like a fucking asshole—but I don't want to say it felt 
just, just is not the right word, but it felt like there was something peaceful to it, if that makes sense. Like Terry lived so long, he had so many health problems as a result of being a wrestler who did like deathmatch wrestling and all the different things he did for like 50 years, you know, and he had tons of like health scares and he's like the sort of guy that you didn't, you wouldn't think was going to make it to this age even. God, I mean, we would have loved Terry to be around until he's 150 or something, but um, he had an exemplary career. He influenced so many people. He touched so many lives. And he passed, like, you know, like, at, like in his old age, and which not a lot of wrestlers get to do that. Um, you know, there's so many horrible, horrible stories of wrestlers dying young or too young and, and stuff. So, like, in a way, when they announced that Terry passed, it was like, that sucks. It's sad. But it feels like, okay, well, like, he, he had, like, an amazing life. You know what I mean? Like, you would, you would hope whenever you die, if that happens, I don't know, you know whenever that happens, what I say, if, whenever that happens, that you leave behind a legacy like his, you know? Uh, but then a couple of hours ago, um, right before I was going to record this, um, Bray Wyatt, another wrestler, real name Wyndham Rotunda, um, passed away. And, um... I was never like personally the biggest Bray Wyatt fan necessarily. Like it's not like, again, like this is not like a wrestler that like, I don't know, whenever Bret Hart dies, probably gonna do a lot of crying. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think a a wrestler death has like really hit me since like Scott Hall passed. Like that actually really fucked me up. Huge Scott Hall fan. But, um, Bray was such a talented and like creative dude. And you know what he sort of lacked in like the ring sometimes like he had he obviously had such a mind for the businesses his father was the former michael wall street former erwin arshyster in the 90s uh you know his father was a wrestler his grandfather was blackjack mulligan his uncle was barry windham his 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 younger brother i think i think bo's the younger brother bo dallas is a wrestler so a whole again a whole wrestling family this whole dynasty this legacy and Bray just seemed like he had, he had so many cool ideas for things. I personally was not like crazy about his wrestling stuff over the last few years personally, but I still thought he was going to end up like leaving wrestling and having like a cool secondary career, like, I don't know, writing horror movies or working on video games or some shit. Like he clearly had more ideas and energy than like even the ring could, could quite contain. Right. And he died. He, he died today. Um, and kind of fucked me up just because like Bray and I are like the same age and we're both like big stocky guys. I mean, like I'm fatter than Bray Wyatt, obviously, but like this man left behind like four kids, you know, he was, a, he was a father, he had a family and, um, you know, technically essentially like in the prime of his career, like he had so much more to give creatively to the business, to, 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 to people, the, the people that were touched by his work. And, uh, just dying that young is just so, I mean, it's just so fucked up, you know? Um, like my plans for this episode were like largely joyous. Like I've had like a pretty hard couple of weeks, a couple of weeks myself, but then like I had, and I felt some, some good stuff and I wanted the episode to be like really positive. And then like just this news just kind of like, I've, I was not about to fucking record a giant, like, you know, grinning podcast while I'm still sitting here thinking about this dude dying. Like this guy was like my age. Um, it just puts a lot in perspective. I think for people, you know, like you start to think about like in your head, you think about life as being like, I'm just going to live for like, not forever. I don't think I'm going to live forever, 
I don't know. It'd be kind of interesting, I guess, if I became a vampire. But uh, you don't think necessarily like, well, fuck, what if I died like tomorrow? You know what I mean? And like, even though Bray didn't leave behind the legacy that like a Terry Funk did, he, he's still leaving behind like a pretty palpable legacy. And I don't know, just started, not to be like selfish about it or something, but it just made me think about like, what kind of legacy am I leaving behind? Like, what have I done? You know, and it's just crazy. It's just crazy. I, I mean, I still haven't like fully processed. Look, I, I didn't know the guy personally, obviously. And uh, by all accounts, it was one of the guys in the business who people really liked you know, who like, uh, was well-liked. He was a good guy. I don't, I can't think of any stories about Bray being like a fucking brick or something. So not that if he was, that it'd be okay that he was dead. I'm just saying like he had a reputation for being like a really cool, friendly, like good cat. So it's, um, it's fucked up. <sighs> Sorry. Just, this is fucked up. He's dead. It sucks. Um, every, like, you know, like, uh, I got the text from a friend that was like, Justin texted me and he was like, dude, Bray Wyatt's dead. And, um, I jumped into the Asia discord just to see people's reactions talking about it and stuff. And it was just, it's this rough, man. It's a big loss, um, to like the community of people that like this, uh, the one true sport. So that's a huge bummer. Um, I would, uh, about in like 2013, 2014, when Bray Wyatt, uh, he had this carrot. If you don't watch wrestling, Bray Wyatt had this character of being kind of like this, like, Bayou shaman supernatural type vibe mixed with like I don't know like Lovecraft stuff. It was a lot of influences, you know, and um, it was very like it was, it was very cool at the time. And he had a, 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 a like a little stable of him and two other guys. Uh, one of the guys, Luke Harper, um, who passed away a couple of years ago under similarly like sudden circumstances. Um, they had this feud with, uh, the shield, which is WWE's like the biggest stable they've had in a very long time. Three guys who all went on to become big stars. Like John Moxley was a big star in AEW. Seth Rollins and Roman Reigns are big stars in WWE. And, um, it was like the six man feud. These like three guys and three guys. And, like they had nothing in common to be feuding. One was like a group of like guys that dressed like, you know, like black block security guards or something. And then the other three guys looked like they came out of like a, a exploitation movie. But, uh, the, the, the matches they had were like insane. The feud they had was insane. I remember at the time it was a really good couple of matches to show to friends who haven't watched wrestling in a long time or maybe never had into wrestling. And like they would just immediately be sold. Because it's six guys and they'll have very drastically different um, personas that are like immediately evident in the ring. Like the dynamics between the two different teams and stuff. Like anyone could just pick it up and watch it and like fall in love with pro wrestling. And I think... There's a lot of great wrestlers, a lot of people that do great work, but not everybody can can create something like that where like anybody would just look at it and be like, fuck, I want to go watch more of this. It's actually very hard to do. So um, I don't know if you see stuff online about Bray's passing and you're not a big wrestling person, you're curious at all. I would definitely check those matches out. Or really, if you don't <laughs> wrestling at all, uh, he had this really great sort of what they call like a cinematic match at WrestleMania in 2020 with John Cena. It's basically just like if like David Lynch directed like like a fifteen minute wrestling match is the only way I can kind of describe it, but it's really cool. So like that's I mean that's a that's a cool part of his legacy to check out. Um, but God, I just, you know praise for the families and stuff. Uh, but I hope his kid. I mean his his kids. He's leaving a wife behind. It's just it's rough. And then the other thing that I have to address for the for the new section, again not on the level of the last two things I talked about, but they're moving Dune two. Uh, 
Um, I kind of wish that was only the news I was updating this week. That would have been really nice if it was just like, hey, they're moving a movie. <laughs> but uh, uh, Warner Brothers is moving Dune 2, Dune Part 2, whatever the fuck they're calling it, uh, to March. Um, pulling it off of that uh, that November date, which is I think sucks. Uh, from the, for the, the exhibition industry, I really hope other studios don't start don't start following suit. Uh, the Academy or whatever the fuck went to went public with uh, their counteroffer to the WGA, like some like some scummy fucks, and uh, trying to brute force their way to the end of the strike, and it's not working. So, uh, if the strike strikes are not like wrapped up in the next like month or so, I feel like more shit like this might end up happening, which is a huge bummer. Not as much of a bummer as a grown man leaving behind four children dying. I just mentioned that it was just it was just just shitty that it's also happening. And I, I really wish that I just had to open the episode by saying they moved into and moving on. But I just wanted to acknowledge those two those two losses because um, they've just been I've been thinking about them obviously. So that's it for the news section. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. But um, we're gonna have a lot else to talk about on the pod today. So this might, like I said, this might end up being a long episode. It might not actually. Once I get into it, maybe I'll just be I'll go too fast or something. I um. I don't know, but what I watched this week, like I said, I watched a bunch of fucking movies. Like these are essentially like rookie numbers for like the Dom of old, the Dom of old who would hit like four or five, 600 movies a year on Letterboxd. Uh, I don't think I've cracked a hundred yet, or maybe maybe like 104 or something. I, whatever. Again, rookie numbers, embarrassing, embarrassing for me, but I watched 10 movies, so I guess I'll just go like day by day. So Friday, um, I put last week's episode of the pod up and then I didn't want to do anything. <laughs> I had some other uh, plans that did, did end up happening and I was like, well, I guess I'll just watch movies. So my man Vice Victus on Twitter, if you guys don't follow Vice, you should. He's like a really, really smart, cool, funny guy. Um, great mind for film and stuff. Uh, I saw him tweeting about this Hulu exclusive movie called Miguel Wants to Fight. And I always kind of trust Vice's instincts on movies, just sight unseen. I'd never heard of this movie. I never saw a trailer, nothing. I just saw like a couple of screen grabs from the trailer that he tweeted and that the title's called Miguel Wants to Fight. And it just seemed like there was like a screen grab of like Dasha Polanco um, saying something to this, like her student in class about beating somebody's ass. And he was just like, yeah. And I was like, I don't know what's going on, but it sounds like my kind of movie. And I threw it on and it's like a 90 minute movie fucking love those and i i really dug it i knew nothing about it going in uh the only like two people in it that i recognized are like dasha Polanco's in it she plays like a substitute teacher raul castillo plays the main character miguel's father and i could be wrong but i think the i think miguel's mother is played by uh eddie griffin's girlfriend from the movie double take I don't remember her name, but I was like, I think that's the lady from Double Take. If you've never seen Double Take, um, you should. I think it's really, really funny if I was getting the title of this movie wrong, but it's like Orlando Jones and Eddie Griffin. And it's like a 90s Money Talks-esque uh, comedy caper. Really fun movie. I made a video about it on the channel like four or five years ago. But um Anyway, yeah, those are the people who are in the movie, sorry. Miguel Wants to Fight is about this uh, group of teens who are all, like, 
pugilistically minded, I guess we'll say. They live like in a bad part of town and everybody fights. People get into fights at school all the time. So it's this tight knit group. Miguel is one of the dudes. I don't remember all the other characters' names. I'm sorry. I watched 10 movies this week. I'm not going to remember everyone's fucking name. Miguel's sort of like the only, not like pacifist, but he doesn't, he's the only one in the group that doesn't fight, basically. They, he's obsessed with action movies and fight scenes in movies and like they make TikToks together of like, fake you know like those like history fight things of like abraham lincoln fighting goku or whatever like that type of thing i guess like um with like cosplayers and anime references and stuff but then like one of his friends um used to be a boxer his father was a boxer his father passed away and then there's a girl in the group like this young black girl who's a boxer and there's this other dude who's like young i think he's an indian guy he kind of reminds me of like young quentin tarantino which was a little bit weird um, but they all are used to getting into these like fights cause it's just, that's how life is. And they get into a fight and they discover that Miguel's never been in one and that every fight they've ever had as a group that where they thought he jumped in and was involved, he was always off to the side somehow. So Miguel finds out that his family is moving away to like a nicer neighborhood. He feels disconnected from his father. He thinks his father respects his best friend more because he can fight and he can't and stuff. So he just keeps he keeps trying to get into fights um and the movie has kind of a little reductive to say but like a little bit of like a scott pilgrim versus the world vibe just in a sense of like the way it mixes action with like slice of life youth stuff and like some of the editing is somewhat similar to like the way Edgar Wright handled that movie um but it's very i thought it was very heartfelt it was like a very sincere movie and it was also funny like earnestly funny um but all the stuff with the characters was all really good. It was like real believable. Like there's a lot of like modern references and things like that, but they all feel very natural. They don't, they don't feel too shoehorned in. Um, I think the movie's co-written by Shay Serrano, um, who like, I just know from like Twitter, but I, I, I think he writes for like the ringer or used to write for the ringer. Um, pretty funny guy. And like, it was, you could kind of sense his sensibilities kind of all over it, but really cool little movie. Um, exactly the sort of thing I want to see on a streaming platform. Just this like random little, neat movie with a lot of cool you know it's like the, like a really diverse cast and like there's like sort of that feeling of like genuine representation it doesn't feel like oh we made this such and such character black this time but it was written by like a 55 year old white woman or something it's like actually it feels authentic and it's a really fun little movie if you if you have hulu um it's on hulu so i watched that and then um because i still was into the vibe of like i should watch something else that's actiony but not too actiony I finally watched that movie Polite Society that I heard some good things about. Um, I meant to see that when it was in theaters and just never did, but um, pretty sweet little movie. Uh, my biggest beef with Polite Society, I don't have as much to say about this movie, but I did watch it, is that Polite Society, like, it's like these, this story of these two sisters in England, and one of them wants to be like a stunt woman, she like is training in martial arts, and her other, her older sister wants to be an artist, but she like is giving up on it because she's depressed, and their parents are trying to make her getting like an arranged marriage and the she ends up dating and getting engaged to this perfect guy but her sister thinks something's up with him and doesn't trust him and stuff and like it's obvious that the sister's just like you know doesn't want to lose her sister like that's the only other person who really gets her and she doesn't want her to like go away and stuff and move to wherever the fuck they're supposed to move to in the movie but then the movie like <laughs> she spends the whole movie kind of like um she spends the whole movie like trying to prove this guy's bad. And then the, the movie's like, he is, <laughs> he's like a super villain actually. 
Um, and like it makes it makes the movie work and stuff. But I remember thinking like this is this girl has been acting crazy this whole movie. And then like in the last 20 minutes, it's like, oh, yeah, no, but she's she's but she's right. <laughs> and um, I was everything like this is really convenient. Uh, but it was the stuff between the two sisters is really good. Like if you know any sisters, or you have sisters. Um, the dynamic is like really, really cool. And I think really like earnest and I say the words earnest, heartfelt, sincere and genuine a fucking lot. And I just don't know as many other words for those four things, but those are things that, that speak to me in, in things. So I'll figure that out at some point. It's going to look really embarrassing. Um, going to figure out the limits of my vocab, but, uh, no, please, Plate society is cool. I would, I would check it out. I don't have like a strong recommendation for it. I liked it, but I wasn't like, Arr. pretty good movie. Um, but then I did another curious thing. Uh, I've been thinking about equalizer three is coming out soon. But I didn't feel like rewatching the first two Equalizer films because as I remember them, they're so similar that like if I rewatch them, the third one's not going to seem as exciting because it's just so samey. Uh, but I still wanted to see Denzel Washington fuck people up. So I watched rewatched Man on Fire and I have this weird relationship with Man on Fire where like I remember the first time I saw it, I thought it was really cool. And then later I thought it was overrated and then I watched it again. I thought it was cool. And like this time I'm like, I don't want to say it's overrated cause that's not true, but it didn't hit for me the way it did before. Like I just forgot how much this movie is just like, I know it's based on a book and there's like another adaptation of it, uh, where I want to say Scott Glenn plays Creasy or something. I don't know who plays a little girl, but I just, someone walked into a studio and was just like, let's tell a love story basically between a beat up alcoholic, you know, military ops guy and Dakota Fanning. And it's not creepy. It's not, I don't mean like that, but I just mean like, that's essentially kind of what it is. Like it's, it's like them, like again, not like that, but like, there's just, it's about their relationship and like about how she kind of brings it back to being more like a human again. And and then, you know, she gets like kidnapped and stuff. So like on the one hand, it's like the perfect justification for on-screen violence, right? It's like, John Wick, it's like, dude, they killed his dog, they stole his car. All right, he's now allowed to kill 500 people. <laughs> the viewers accept that he can kill 500 people now. You don't kill a dog. And I feel like um, implying that you murdered a little white girl in a movie is like, well, I guess now Denzel Washington's about allowed to put grenades in people's asses now. It's just, that's how this works. So, I don't know, this time watching it, I was it was the first time watching it where I was kind of like, this doesn't really do it for me the way I, it doesn't do it for me the way I remembered it doing it for me which is sort of a, a pitfall, I guess, of like emotional movie watching. Um, sometimes you're just not feeling certain shit, you know what I mean? So like maybe I shouldn't have watched Man on Fire that night. Maybe I should have picked something closer to the Miguel wants to fight polite society, lo-fi slacker action milieu or whatever. But uh, no, I watched Denzel Washington just like be steely eyed and shit. I really, I'm really looking forward to Equalizer 3 and I hope it's good. Uh, but maybe I should just rewatch those. Or maybe I should just rewatch like the Jack Reacher movies or something. That's really what I wanted to watch. Was I wanted to watch like just a, a dude walking around, like fucking stuff up. Um, I think the last time I tried to watch something like that was I watched like the first like three episodes of Amazon's Jack Reacher show, but I watched it on TikTok. Someone uploaded it in like a bunch of little clips and that's, I watched it like that. Like I could have just opened up prime and watched the show for real, but I was just like, no, did they upload part 49 now? And like, that's how I watched it. Like a fucking weirdo. So yeah, that was Friday. And then Saturday I had very simple plans. I wanted to go 
see Oppenheimer for the second time. It is on no, it is not not on any IMAX screens in the area, and um, I'd already seen it in seventy millimeter, so I didn't want to see it in seventy millimeter again. Um, so the biggest way I could see it in the DC area without having I could go to Chantilly to to see like the real real deal version because I don't have a car, um, and there's not afford to Uber to fucking Chantilly, but. I uh, went to the Alamo Draft House on Bryant Street in D.C., across from Metro Bar. This is my second time going. I went there a month and a half ago, maybe, to see the clone Tyrone. It was my first time going to this Alamo. And there was another Alamo in Loudoun County, the Loudoun One Alamo. And when they first opened, I was just not a big fan of that theater. I've been there several times, but I've just never liked it. I actually really like the Bryant Street one. Like it's a little smaller. If maybe it's not that much smaller, but it feels cozier. Kind of. Every time I go, the staff is actually pretty chill. They're all pretty nice, which is pleasant to see when you go to movie theater. And um, it's just a pretty cool place, I guess. Uh, they have this thing. Alamo. All the Alamos and all the newer Alamos that are built have this thing called the Big Show. And every they have one screen that's like real big. And I, I guess technically in the DC area, it's the largest non-IMAX screen. It's like the biggest screen at a theater in DC. So I watched it. I watched Oppenheimer there, and it was actually really, really good screen. Really strong projection. Um, the seats are comfy. This is going to be very silly, but almost all the good theaters now have switched over to having recliners. Right? Recliners are like the thing at movie theaters. I have a theater that got renovated right before that became the standard. So we have like nicer leather seats, but they don't move. And every day someone calls me and they're like, do you, do you guys have recliners? I'm like, no, we don't. I'm like, well, can, do they move a little bit? I'm like, no, motherfucker. <laughs> Something is a recliner or it's not. It's not like a, the last theater I worked at had a similar, similar seat situation where there were leather, there were nice seats, but they just don't recline. And I was at guest services one day and this guy came up he was telling his friends, yeah, they got these really nice recliners here. And I was like, no, we don't. And he was like, yeah, you do. And I was like, no, you must have us confused in our theater. We don't have recliners at this theater. And he was like, last time I was here, I, I leaned back. It felt really great. And then I realized this guy was one of the many motherfuckers who would get in those seats that don't move back. And they would try to like thrust their, their backs backward, you know, to like make them move back. And they don't end up damaging the seats. They would like end up plucking them kind of up out of the ground. So it's like, yeah, your seat reclines because you fucking broke it, dick. But anyway, at the Alamo Draft House on Bryant Street, they have recliners and they're like nice recliners. Um, they're actually very cozy. I have a bit of a problem when I uh, go to certain movie theaters with, with recliners, which is that I'm a large man. I'm a large man. And uh, a lot of models of recliners have the thing where the control is inside the seat, like under the armrest. And I fidget a lot. Um, I'm weird. And like my like fat, I'm not, I have no hips. I'm not like, I have like zero hips necessarily. I'm very like straight down, but still there's a lot of me. Um, we'll just bump into the thing. So I can't really use the recliner portion because I just like, like just kind of up and down, up and down, up and down because I'm bumping into the fucking controls. The Alamos recliners are like wide enough to where that doesn't happen. I can actually just recline and like they recline, recline. Like they go like all the way, like I, I was three hours of oppie. I was like fucking floating, dude. It was really nice. 
Um, I don't even have anything to share about having seen Oppenheimer a second time because all I kept thinking about was like, this is so fucking comfy, you know? Um, and once again, just made the movie not feel like three hours. It just like kind of breezed by. Uh, so thank you, Christopher Nolan and whoever the fuck designed the seats at the Alamo Draft House on Bryan Street. Uh, I really appreciate that comfortable experience. But um, before I watched Oppenheimer, I was like, well, I, I want to, you know, I, I kind of wanted to like be watching movies all the time. So I got there early enough to catch an open caption show of Landscape with Invisible Hand, this new indie movie. Um, I don't, I think A24 put this out or Neon, one of the two. Uh, I, no, I'm so wrong. I think it's actually Annapurna Pictures, which like used to be on par with A24 and Neon and now they're just like not, they got a lot of duds. But um, I think that's what, I'm, I should have written this down in my notes, guys. I'm sorry, but a uh, pretty solid movie. Um, uh, Very strange cool concepts, pretty good performances, uh, especially from Josh Hamilton, uh, from Noah Baumbach's first film, Kicking and Screaming, who's the main character in Kicking and Screaming. He also is the dad in Bo Burnham's eighth grade. Uh, he's having himself like a little bit of a like renaissance now. He was in, uh, reality, the movie that came out, uh, I think, I don't know if it's like a Max exclusive with Sydney Sweeney, um, about, reality was her name reality winner the 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 lady that got like the nsa shit that happened or whatever anyway he was in that um and he's in this and uh he's really good and uh tiffany haddish is really good in this too actually um i know there's a lot of like stuff that's happened with her in the media where people don't talk about her as much but like as an actress i was actually pretty impressed by this performance uh it's about like a future where aliens have come and like occupied earth and uh um, the thing about the about the move is that it has this like, you know, sort of metaphor for like this is like what's happening with late stage capitalism, but like with aliens. And I remember just thinking like it doesn't feel dystopian enough, if that makes sense. Like I know people have joked about how much harder it is to make science fiction these days because it's like, you know, like the people behind Black Mirror. It's like, are you guys going to come up with anything that's fucking harder than what's really happening to us? You know. And Landscape with Invisible Hand is interesting and has some cool ideas and pretty pretty decent execution. But there were times where I was just like, yeah, this is like essentially, this isn't like enough of a fable deal. Like this just feels like, minus the aliens, legitimately what life is like now. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. It was interesting. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was cool. There's um, There's this whole thing... One thing about the movie, I'll say, like I, I originally went to see it before Op because I thought about making a video about it, but then having seen it, I was like, I don't really have enough thoughts for a whole video, and I'm trying to avoid making quote unquote content about things that I don't have strong feelings about one way or the other, um, because I feel like I'm wasting my time and yours by watching it. I don't think anyone wants to watch a video from me. It's just kind of like, yeah, that was uh, that was okay, I guess. You know, like I, I I try to make sure like I have something to say, and if I don't, like I'll do something else. You know, time is time is precious. But there's this, the, the, a huge chunk of the movie is about the fact that this, uh, the main character, I remember his name, is a young black kid and um, he has a younger sister and he's an artist and his dad moved out west to make money and then just disappeared on them and his mom didn't actually, they own a house but they don't make any money, like they're, they're like poor, 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 but they own this house. And he meets this girl like the first day of school. It was like this little white girl from they just moved here with her family and they don't have a place to live. They're living in a, in a car. 
So he invites him over for dinner and then convinces his mom to let them move into the basement. So you have this like little white family of the guy from eighth grade and the girl and her dipshit older brother living in the basement from this black family. But in their eyes, the black family is like rich people <laughs> and they consider them like landlords cause they're making them pay rent to stay in the basement. And, uh, so you get all this weird stuff where it's like the white family talking to them is like, you don't know what we've been through. Like, da -da 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 -da. and like, uh, at first, um, <laughs> at first I thought that, um, it was like going to be funnier. Like they were going to mind more comedy from it. Cause it's sort of like, though, like this is not what you think it is. But at times I was like, does the filmmaker realize that like in their imaginary timeline where aliens took over, not much time has passed from what would be considered our present. So the idea is like aliens came and then within like two years, white people, and these are like sort of like Libby kind of like middle-class white people um, now feel like the blacks are like actually the enemy or something. I don't know. Some of the racial commentary, I suppose the movie was a little bit strange to me, um, particularly because like it's it, the, the, the real thrust of the movie is that the young boy and the girl kind of start to fall for each other. And then she has the idea that they should uh, do a, uh, like a courtship broadcast, which is basically like they live stream their relationship to aliens because aliens like romance apparently because they don't experience it and they make money off of it depending on how many aliens are watching and then the aliens sue them because they say it's fake because she's like pretending to be in love with him and uh i felt like i'm glad that the movie is not all about that it moves away from that very smartly uh, uh thank god but the part the trailer makes it seem like that's the whole movie and as you're experiencing that part of the movie the, the love interest girl character is like so like, I don't want to say annoying, but she, I feel like she's presented as being like really sympathetic and she sort of is, but the way she's played and like the way she's written makes her seem like, no, I feel like this person's like actually kind of like villain adjacent, like the, like the things she does and like what comes from her decisions, um, are like really bad for this, this, these, these characters but it's not treated that way. It's kind of treated like, you know, it's not a big deal kind of. And, um, I am not normally one of those people who's like, you know, if a movie doesn't go out of its way to tell, you know, me that this is morally incorrect or something, how am I supposed to know that it's not endorsing? I'm not one of those people, but throughout much of the movie, I was like so annoyed with her. I was just so much like, why? Like, this is, why is it? We're not, we're not going to reconcile this. Like I was just really irritated. Um, and that kind of took away from my enjoyment of other parts of the story, but I was just like, what the fuck is like her, this deal, you know? And it's, I don't know, maybe I'll feel differently if I see it again, but I have no, it's very unlikely I want to watch this movie again anytime soon, but who knows, but that's landscape with invisible hand. Um, I would give this about the same level of recommendation as I would like polite society. Like, I think it's a good movie. I think people will like it, but I'm not going to tell you to like, you know, fight down the doors or something, a movie I am going to tell you that you need to make an immediate part of your cinematic diet is, uh, so after I did Oppie, I was originally going to spend some time with, uh, my best friend, Cody, love you, Cody, if you're listening. And, um, but like it just, our plans like just kind of fell through. It was like a sort of like a, like a no bones day for both of us. And, uh, so I came home and I was like, oh, I need more movies. And, um, I was talking to the homie Kyle Bragg about, he was, there's a movie he was telling me I should watch and I'm going to watch it, but 
I didn't want to watch it this week because I've already watched so many other things that I was like, I'll save that for next week because I feel like this is going to take up a good chunk of the pod too. So there's an exciting movie I've never seen that I'm supposed to see that will be in the next episode, I think. But as we had the conversation, he mentioned something about Albert Pyun, the filmmaker, the guy that directed Cyborg, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, and also the Captain America movie from the 90s. And uh, I... I, I'm not like a huge fan of his in the sense that like I, I don't watch I haven't seen all of his movies but like I when he passed recently I saw tons of people logging a bunch of his movies on Letterboxd and they all looked fucking awesome and the one that had the coolest poster was this movie Nemesis and it happened to be uh streaming uh I think it was streaming on Peacock maybe I think I watched it on Peacock and um the best things on Peacock right now like the WWE Network and, 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 and Albert Pion's Nemesis I threw that shit on and buddy, um, if you guys follow me on Letterboxd or your Letterboxd people, you'll know that I almost never star rate movies. When I watch stuff, I don't do star rating. Sometimes I give reviews, sometimes I give longer ones, sometimes I do the typical pithy joke review thing, but a lot of times I just log stuff. To me, Letterboxd is just about remembering what I watched and when. I've been using it since the beginning of 2015 and it's like a very important tool for me but i don't really i don't do the the star thing i don't because I, I change my mind too much it's, i'm very picky i hate giving things numerical ratings and star ratings and stuff and letter grades and shit however i have a bit of a gimmick i have a gimmick that i do which is that sometimes if i'm moved profoundly enough by a certain kind of movie i will give it five stars uh and if you go to my letterbox <laughs> i guess i'll try to link it or something in the show notes so it's easier to find but basically, <laughs> I only give five-star ratings out to, like, very specific, astronomically good things or, like, ridiculous things that are, like, so unique that, like, I have to mark them somehow. And then I only give out half-star or one-star ratings to things that I hate so much that, like, I'll go to someone's house and be like, did you direct this movie and then fight them? Like, movies like that. Uh, so, like, for instance, for a while, the only two five-star rated things I had a letterbox were... Um, Stone Cold with Brian Bosworth and, uh, and, and Beyonce's Lemonade. Those are the only two things that had five stars for a while. But I've since, I've added a couple of like genuine five stars. Like I gave Miami Vice, I think five stars finally on like my seventh rewatch or whatever. Uh, I gave Albert Pion's Nemesis five stars off break. It is like this really cool, like nineties martial arts cyberpunk movie thing that is so unique and it's just like dripping with ideas there's so many ideas on display the guy playing the main character is like a part cyborg detective who undergoes no less than like six or seven haircuts throughout the movie's like 100 minute runtime and he is i think i saw someone on a, on a review call him like a broke dick Jean-Claude Van Damme and like it's not wrong not the best actor but there's a lot of like character there kind of like Tommy was so adjacent but like better and not weird I have to spend next weekend with Tommy was that's another story for later <laughs> but um uh the guy's really good like he's he's, he's like really he, the martial arts stuff is cool he's like incredibly like shredded in like a very scary sinewy 90s image art type of way like he looks sort of like rob liefeld drew him for like a swimsuit issue or something 
Uh, but he's a cyborg detective. There's like a war going on in LA between like cyborgs and humans. And uh, it doesn't really make it clear who's supposed to be the bad guy. It's essentially like Blade Runner. If Blade Runner was a Skinamax movie. Um, if that makes sense, all the things I'm saying, all the things I'm saying about this movie make it sound like it's not a good movie and you shouldn't watch it, but I'm telling you, it's a really good movie and you have to watch it. The plot doesn't always make the most sense, but there's so much of it. Like there's just so much story and twists and stuff. Like it really, all I can say is if you look up the poster for the movie, the poster is really rad, the font, everything. It's a really cool poster. The movie feels like that poster. Basically I, I have like a thing that I really like in movies, a very specific type of thing that only, only I can only attribute to a handful of filmmakers, but sometimes you watch a movie and you feel like the person is inventing movies for the first time. Like if movies didn't exist, this person could just come up with the idea and this is what they would come up with. If that makes sense. I know this is a very strange way to say this, but like, I want to say it's a Godard quote, maybe. And I think he said this about Nicholas Ray. <laughs> I think he said like Nicholas Ray's films, like that within him, there's like the passion, the creativity to like, if cinema were to no longer exist, that he would invent it. He would like, he would create it or something. Like if there was no God, he would be God or whatever. I'm butchering the fuck out of this quote. You got to look it up. I'm, I'm, I've quoted it elsewhere. It's like one of my favorite quotes and somehow I can't remember it right now. But I feel that way about Albert Pyun. And like I, 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 when I talked to Kyle about this, I was like, I don't think I've ever seen any of Albert Pyun's movies. And um, he was like, he did the really bad Captain America. And I was like, I love that Captain America when I was a kid because I was a kid and I didn't know any better. So I thought that was the only movie of his I'd seen. But then I realized he did Cyborg, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. And a couple of years ago, I did a watch project where I watched every... I never finished it where I watched every Jean-Claude Van Damme movie and every Steven Seagal movie, but like in order of when they came out. So I could kind of like monitor these twin dragons kind of actions career and stuff. And, um, I got to finish it at some point. It was a really fun project. I was really having a blast with it, but, uh, I remember watching cyborg and that was I, in my review. I think I referenced that quote on Letterboxd is like, there's moments in this that feel like primordial cinema. Like there's a part in Cyborg where Jean-Claude Van Damme is like doing the splits up above this like thing and he's about to like drop and fight a guy. And the way it's framed and shot and edited is so fucking cool. It's so cool. And like you can't fake that. You know what I mean? Like that's just there's something like there's something like primal there. And um a lot of that is in is in Cyborg. I don't I mean sorry, in not in Cyborg, in, in Nemesis. I don't think I've felt this kind of like crackling raw movie energy since I was like a teenager and I saw Ryuhei Kitamura's verses like that kind of energy where you're like this movie just feels like the camera is a guy on a stick with guns running around with a sword you know like that's I'm people tell me I'm eloquent but I don't know how to fucking express this it's just it's it's really fucking cool and I hope that at least you can hear my voice that like I was not in a great mood after I left Oppie and stuff. Like I started, I don't, I don't remember like how my day went, but I started feeling kind of like bummed out about a lot of life stuff. And I threw on Nemesis and I didn't remember, I don't remember anything about any of that shit. And I was like, what? No, I want to find out what's going on with the cyborg war. I want to find like fucking end of the movie. Like Jackie Earl Haley shows up as like a hacker guy or something. Thomas Jane's in it. You see his ass. He gets, he gets killed really badly. Um, one of the guys in names of the movie is like Thomas Thomerson. I want to say I could, have, I could be wrong about that, but Maria has a really weird fucking name. There are so many, like if this was a less packed week for me, I probably could have made this entire episode just about nemesis because 
there's just so much stuff in it. It is just chock full of, of shit. And I fucking loved it. I love Nemesis. I don't want to, we have other stuff to talk about, so I kind of got to move on. But like, if you please watch, please watch this movie, <laughs> please, please watch this movie and then comment on the YouTube version or whatever. Or if you have my number, text me or whatever. I don't know. Hit me up and tell me what you thought about Nemesis. If you've seen this movie, it is so good. And the thing is, I know probably people have already seen this. Like I'm probably very late to this party, but man, I'm so fucking glad I watched it. It felt so good to hit the little thing with the fifth star. I was like, this is the most true thing I will do this week. Um, so then uh, the next day, next day, I um, I went to, okay, so on the on the, the, the video this week, on the, the new video, I talked about um, AMC Stubbs A-List. I talked about the subscription model for the theatrical business and stuff. Uh, and in the video, I mentioned how uh, almost a month ago now, almost exactly a month ago now, I got right into the wire. Uh, I had planned to do the Barbenheimer double feature after I told everybody not to do it. I was going to do it myself to make a video, like joking about it or something. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. Uh, I ended up not doing that. Uh, one of my good friends was in town. We went and hung out with him instead. But when I planned to do it and I was buying the tickets for it, you know, the app was like, you may as well get AMC A-list and these two movies will be free and you get a free one later or whatever the fuck, how they, how they pitched to you. And I was like, okay, fine, whatever, fuck. And I did that. But then, and they're not going. So like, I just deleted that or whatever. And I forgot that, hey, I paid for a month the AMC A-list stubs. It's like $24.99 or something. And um, I remembered, hey, I've not seen a single fucking free movie on this thing. You get three free ones a week and the month is almost up. And I wanted to do something with my Sunday that would not cost me money. <laughs> uh, not a great week for your boy. So I was like, what can I do for essentially free? And I said, like, well, technically I already paid for this shit. So let's go do this. So I went to the AMC at Wheaton Mall in Maryland. If you guys live from around, I don't, I don't know how many like local listeners I have really. Probably not very many. But if you do, maybe you know. I've never seen a movie at AMC Wheaton before. It's the only AMC in the area I've never been to. And now I know why <laughs> the AMC Whedon is like kind of a dog shit theater. It kind of really strongly reminds me of university mall in Fairfax, Virginia. If you've never been there before, I've had a lot of really great viewing experiences at that theater. Uh, but that's like a second run. Like they have steel popcorn and old candy and tickets are like, you know, I don't know if you have a special handshake with the guy you can get in or something. And there's always like, random like lumber at the front of the auditorium because like they're doing like a construction project that never gets finished but uh this is not a second run theater this is a first run real amc it's like a real theater i don't have any screens they have i want to say like 10 or 12 maybe and maybe 10 i don't think it was 12 whatever but it's like a lot of a fair number of screens i guess and i plotted out my three free movies to go all in one day i was like i'm gonna do it like doop 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 boom and uh um when I got there, I was like, oh my God, it's like a very like kind of cramped, kind of flat feeling theater. I will say the staff were all very nice. Some of them were like demonstrably not good at their jobs, but they were like friendly at least. Nobody was mean. Uh, the one thing I will say also, sorry, about the AMC stub shit is like, I've never done it before. And every time you do anything stubs related, they, you have to show them your ID so they know you're not like sharing it with someone. But every, I was there all day. So like three times they wanted to see my ID and like every time it felt very weird. Like I don't get carded for anything. I like, I, I'm obviously like a man who's over the age of whatever thing. Like I'm old enough for all of it, <laughs> literally all of it. So fucking old. 
Uh, so that was just, it was weird getting carded, I guess. I mean, like, it's not carded. You're not getting carded. You don't have to be a certain age to have a list, but it was just weird. Anyway, uh, I saw three movies in a row. I watched in the morning, I watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem. And I want to say that I got into the theater. Here's the thing that kind of fucked me up about, about, uh, about the Wheaton AMC. On the seat maps, the theaters looked small. So like I picked seats that were further back. And then when I got in the auditorium, like I used to work at a theater in downtown DC where their auditoriums are all very small. They're like roughly 40 to 50 seats, but it's like wide. It's like 14 rows wide and then like five rows. And then like the, it's kind of like a, like a rectangle shaped auditorium. Uh, at the Wheaton, their smaller auditoriums are the same thing, but they're like reversed. It's like seven rows that are like eight deep. And the screens is very far. So it feels like you're in like a like a box, sort of like a shoe box, and someone has a movie screen on the other end of it. And I was like, oh, I don't like this. Because <laughs> it made the screen so fucking little. Um, but when I sat down, I was like dead center in the middle. And then there was a, a small family that sat directly next to me, and another small family that sat directly behind me. And even though they were the only ones in the theater, I could have just got up and gone and sit in the front row, which I wanted to do. But I didn't want it to look like I was trying to get away from them. I didn't want to look a jerk. Everyone that was there had kids. And I was by myself to watch a Ninja Turtles movie. So I didn't want to be like weird. So I just sat there. I just I just dealt with it. Um, And the whole trailers. They played so many god awful fucking trailers for these kids movies. It's like this bird movie. Migration. Fucking Aquafina's in. Like that Trolls movie. It should just be in The Hague. And then uh, <laughs> that... The Paw Patrol movie? There's a Paw Patrol movie where the Paw Patrol gets superpowers. I was like, is it enough is enough. You can't make a Paw Patrol movie without giving them superpowers. They can't just like solve a mystery. Whatever. I don't never seen Paw Patrol, but I watched all these kids' movies and I was listening to these kids like get fucking ballistic for every new shiny color glitter thing they saw. And I was like, these kids are about to fuck this up for me. And then they did not. They were extremely well behaved. There was a couple little moments of like the two brothers kind of near me, maybe fighting over the popcorn a little bit, but otherwise the kids like really were behaved. They liked the movie. They popped for a lot of stuff. And I felt two things. I felt like a fucking asshole that I was just like, Oh, these fucking kids are going to ruin it. Like they didn't. And also it's for them. It's for them. I'm here just cause I'm, uh, you know, nostalgia, but like I felt terrible that I was about to like mentally claim this for myself and that they were going to ruin it for me. Like how uh, maybe I'm going to ruin it for them, you know? And I didn't, it was a good time. The movie's really fun. Um, really cool changes to the mythology. They really make the turtles like actually feel like teens for the first time ever. The voice actors are really good. A lot of really fun little guest parts and stuff. I think Ao Adibiri from The Bear is a really good April O'Neil, and like her di- dynamic with the turtles is so fun and funny and, in- and entertaining. Um, Jackie Chan Splinter was really funny. One of the fights that Splinter gets into is like animated and structured kind of like a Jackie Chan fight. Like he doesn't get to say, I don't want no trouble, nothing, but like, it's very close to the structure of the way he works. And I thought that was very cool. Um, everyone is comparing it to Spider-Verse because it has like a, you know, a strange animation style, but like it felt a little bit looser, like a little bit more fun and lively and not so, I love the Spider-Verse movies, but like I'm at, at, at this, this many months removed from the second one. I'm very sick of people just like isolating something and being like, isn't this a crazy, amazing detail? And like, it's really good that you can dig in that deep with it. But I like that turtles was like, I didn't, I didn't think that hard about the animation. I didn't think that hard about, 
I didn't feel like I had to go look at a Twitter thread from one of the storyboard artists to explain how they came to whatever, whatever. Like I was actually vested in the story and the characters. So I kind of liked that. I liked that it wasn't, you know, the other thing. Um, so I really, I really dug it. Uh, I, I will say the, the movie opened with an introduction from Seth Rogen, which I thought was fucking weird. Cause I'm like, how many 11 year olds know who Seth Rogen is? Like what? And, um, I will say the biggest thing that was weird to me about the movie is that, you know, usually when we watch kids movies, it's a bunch of shit for the kids, like a bunch of shiny, funny, bloop, 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 bloop type shit. But then for the parents, there's a bunch of like boomer humor, right? And I realized that all of the parent humor in Mutant Mayhem is for like millennials. It's for like people my age, like people my age have kids, people my age have kids that they take to the movies. And I guess I hadn't thought about that in a while. So every time something happened where me and the the dad, it was a dad next to me and a mom behind me. It was like two single parent families or whatever. Every time the three of us laughed at something, the kids didn't. I was like, oh, fuck. This is this doesn't feel right. Because <laughs> I remember thinking like they shot like there's a lot of like kitty, you know, like TikTok reference humor and Fortnite stuff, whatever. But then there's a bunch of stuff that's like every needle drop is just clearly stuff that Seth Rogen listens to when he smokes weed. Like Annie Up is in this movie, you know what I mean? Like there's just like a very like there's an entire montage set to like No Diggity by Blackstreet. Like this is not for the kids, it's for the elder millennials, and uh, that kind of fucked me up and made me feel carbon dated, and it was just weird. But really fun movie. If you have not seen it yet, uh, if it's still in your theaters, it kind of is flaming out box office wise. Check it out. Really fun. Whenever it hits VOD or whatever, watch it then too. It's really, really, really. I really recommend it very strongly. I had a, I had a blast. But then. After that, I watched, talked, mm, ooh, Jesus, <laughs> not going to edit that out. We got to keep it real. Um, we, I watched Talk to Me, the new A24 horror movie, and I really like this as well, actually. Two things going in. I did not know, one, that it was an Australian movie. Didn't know it was an Aussie, an Aussie thing. And two, I didn't know that it was directed by two YouTubers. Because I saw the, they were getting interviewed by uh, Logan Paul. And somebody was like, why are the talk to me directors being interviewed by Logan Paul? And I was like, cause they're, that's their ilk. It's like, they're probably boys from the, from way back on the, on the tube. Uh, but I thought it was really good. Uh, it definitely feels like the kind of movie that people might end up like severely overrating as happens a lot of like a 24 produced horror. But, uh, no, I thought it was like really, really good. I'll say this. I had to, I had to watch the trailer for the exorcist, the believer, the, the David Gordon green exorcist movie that's coming out. I had to watch that trailer like twice, uh, in my, in my travels and it just is doing nothing for me. I think I told, I told my friend Justin, I was like, this movie feels like when James Cameron went into the studio with alien and added like an S and then a dollar sign. I don't know if that, I can't remember if that story is real or not, but you know, that, that joke about how he pitched aliens. Like, I feel like David Gordon Green did it with the exorcist, but it was just like, imagine if there was two girls possessed in tandem. You know, like multi-track drifting. It just, I was like, this is not, this is not it. I mean, I'll watch it. Maybe it'll be good, but I had like no interest in it. And then I watched Talk to Me, which does exorcism style shit in it very well. And I was like, see, you guys are like, they're making this, they're making this unnecessary now. Like there's no, like, I feel like David Gordon Green's going to watch this movie and be like, fuck, <laughs> oh, I'm ruined. Um, but no, no, it's, it's a good movie. Um, uh, another movie where like a character, char you know, another movie where there's a character making kind of unsound decisions and like, well, basically if you have 17, talk to me, um, 
it's a group of like teens get together and like there's this like embalmed hand. It's like it looks like a statue, but there's like a real dead hand inside of it allegedly. And if you hold it and you light a candle and you say, talk to me, like you're opening a portal to the dead and you'll, you'll just see someone dead in front of you. And then if you say, I let you in, it'll, they'll possess you for like, you can only do it for like 90 seconds or something. And then you have to break it. Otherwise the, the dead will stay here. So of course someone does that. But, um, the movie really takes its time getting to the bit and it really, the rising action to it is very, very strong. And when they finally show it, I remember thinking like, this is actually fucking good. Like I didn't know they could pull this off, but it really works. And they invest you in the characters and like the main characters, like mother died and you know, uh, she has to come to terms with the fact that her mother killed herself. And she's like really tight with her best friend's family and like loves them. Like they're her family, but there's also like tension between them and all the family dynamic stuff and all of that character work is very good. I thought they layered the story really nicely, but like her best friend comes off like such an asshole throughout the story. And then there's multiple moments where like, she's just kind of being a prick but because her decisions don't directly lead to anything bad happening, she doesn't seem like the bad person in the movie. And I'm just thinking like, again, like I don't, th- maybe this is just a bad thing that I'm having where I'm watching movies lately. And it's like, there's people in here who are not getting their just desserts. Maybe I just have to only watch like key jangling superhero movies where the good guy wins in the end or something. But I just remember feeling kind of like, I don't know. I don't like this. I feel like this girl kind of sucks. Um, but I thought it was a really good movie. The ending was, I thought, really, uh, really well done, really well executed. You know, good, en- good endings are very important. And then I'm not going to talk too much about this because we're getting long in the tooth in this episode. But then after that, after Talk to Me, which I strongly recommend, definitely go see Talk to Me if you can, if it's still playing near you. I watched the last voyage. I lost the wait, not the last, the last voyage, the last voyage of the Demeter. I almost called it the voyage of the last Demeter. The last voyage of the Demeter. Again, going in, haven't seen the trailer for this movie. I just knew that it was about Dracula on a boat. And for whatever reason, because I never saw the trailer, I assumed it was like a modern day version of Dracula. So when it opened and they were on like, on that like old, old time, time, I was like, oh fuck, this is like actually like the, like the original Bram Stoker's Dracula shit. It's essentially just like a cut scene or whatever from the, I've never read the actual book, but you know, the, the, it's about Dracula being transported from Romania to, to England. And then he like kills everybody on board. And like the, the big thing that the movie decides to do is it's like a monster movie. And Dracula is basically this like tall golem. He's this like tall Nosferatu golem. And he's like picking people apart one by one. And not a great movie. Like we can be honest about that. But the kills are pretty good. The suspense is pretty good. All the acting is not bad. It was like a nice little movie. Um, it was like exactly what subscription model theater things are for is like, Hey, if I get three free movies a week, they don't put out 12 good movies every month. And if I wanted to take advantage of this, I'd end up watching stuff that I wouldn't take a chance on. Otherwise I would never pay to see the last voyage of the Demeter. I don't think, but I mean, I guess I technically pay, but you know what I'm saying? Like I got, I got to watch three movies that day. Like uh, my third movie could have been anything. It was going to be that, or I, I almost picked sound of freedom out of curiosity, but no, I like Dracula, so we watched the Dracula Boat movie. And by we, I mean me. I was alone. Uh, me and my thoughts. It was good. I, I really... I, I can't say I recommend that one. I can't I can't lie to you guys like that. But um, if you... Whenever it hits TV, not even VOD, not even streaming, whenever it hits, like, television, when it comes on, like, right before, like, a Lakers game or something on TNT, 
maybe then you should watch the last voyage of the Demeter. You'll have a good time. It's good. It's definitely got TNT new classic energy. I'll say so. Uh, but it was, I'll, I'll say that this it was a really good experience. Like when all was said and done, it was a good way to have spent my weekend. Um, you know, I talk a lot in the, the video this week about the importance of the theatrical experience and how, how good it is. And like, I, had a lot of stuff I've just been kind of wrestling with lately and not being in the best headspace. And like, it, I felt, uh, like, how do I describe this? I felt like safe. Does that sound weird to say? I felt safe at the theater, even though it was the Wheaton with the, the, the shitty, ugly red recliners that make noise and, uh, kind of mediocre, everything else. But it was, I felt good. I felt safe. I feel, I feel good in a dark room with a big picture talking at me. I, I feel sometimes it's like where I feel the most safe, where I feel the best. And, uh, I'm going to try to make more, a more concerted effort to stick with it, to like go to the movies more often. Like I said, I've not been going to the movies outside of press screenings as much because I typically only go to see them for free at the theaters that I work for. And I don't like doing that anymore because it feels like I'm still at work. I don't feel safe in that sense, I, I don't feel like a, the comfort you feel, the escape you feel. I like, I know the buildings too well to, to escape in them. It's like watching a movie at home now. So I need that more of that. And, um, I'm excited to figure out how to fit more of it into my life. So yeah, that's the, what I watched section. I, I know we were going to go a little long, but, uh, we still have time for some questions. We love questions. This is the Q and a section now. Uh, why did I say that? Like now we're doing this. I don't know. Uh, first question is from Iris. What's your power ranking for surprise Matt Damon features off the top of your head? All right. Off the top of the dome. Number one is interstellar because I remember when I saw Interstellar for the first time in IMAX, when Matt Damon popped up in the middle of that fucking movie with no warning, it's the funniest thing. The more you watch interstellar, that scene's not as funny, but the first time I watched it, it was the funniest thing. And everything he says and does in that movie is really funny to me. Like just everything about his entire deal, just like no one, no one's ever been tested. Like I've been tested. Like that, that whole character is fucking insane. It's such a good, it's such a good bit. That's easily number one. And then probably fighting for a second would be when he pops up near the end of no sudden move, the Soderbergh movie. I were thinking like Matt Damon popping up at the end to basically just play like Vince McMahon for a few minutes is really good. And then I really liked when he popped up in uh, another Soderbergh, Soderbergh, another Soderbergh joint. Uh, um, not Contagion, fuck. The other one he shot on an iPhone, where where the girls getting like stalked. I can't remember. I can't believe I don't remember the name right now. But um, that's embarrassing. It's like my favorite director. But anyway, that movie, <laughs> um, the one he did right before. Right after Logan Lucky? Fuck. My memory, not a good brain week for me. Anyway, that movie, he pops up as like a detective, I think, or something. He was, that was a nice little pleasant surprise seeing Matt Damon in a movie shot on an iPhone. And then I guess, I don't know, Eurotrip. I guess Eurotrip is that, this guy doesn't know. It's pretty funny. Um, I, I don't know if you can call Chainsaw Bob Strike Back surprise Damon because he was in the trailer, but um, how do you like them apples, applesauce bitch? That whole thing is really great too. Um, Iris has a follow-up question, sort of. Uh, 
she's asking if I've seen Blast from the Past, the Brendan Fraser movie. Yeah, I've totally seen it. I've not watched it recently. She's asking basically if if I think that the movie holds up and or whether or not there's like it's like problematic and weird. And I remember thinking it was like kind of charming and quaint. I feel like it probably still is. I haven't I haven't rewatched it. I might do that soon, but I don't think that's a movie that makes you uncomfortable. But I Brendan's great in it. And Walken's really great too. Christopher Walken's really good in that. Next question. Thanks, Harris. Channel Not Found asks, what books on film theory would you recommend? Okay, so I don't really write answers down or write the questions down for this, but this one I actually wrote notes so I wouldn't forget things. Unlike the rest of this fucking episode, I guess. Um, I picked five books and one bonus. Okay, so one of the first and most important books I ever got about filmmaking uh, was the book Film Directing Shot by Shot, which was gifted to me by my high school drama teacher, Jeff Mueller. Really good guy. One of the better teachers I've ever had in life. Um, Really nurtured me a lot. Like He knew that I wasn't doing drama because I wanted to be an actor. He knew I wanted to write and I wanted to direct. And he came to me one day near the end of the school year and he was like, you know, uh, I used to really want to make films myself and like, I, I got a kid now, I'm a teacher, I'm never going to make a movie probably. And he gifted me this book. He's like, it's, I, I bought this book when I wanted to do it and now I don't want to do it anymore. So I think it would serve you better. And it's like a textbook. It's like of all the different books, I've read a lot of books about filmmaking. It's the one that the most feels like if I went to, I didn't go to film school obviously, but if you went to a class this would be the book that you would read from, if that makes sense. Uh, really good book. Uh, Mueller was such a such a cool guy, man. Um, we we really got along on a lot of things, and I, he always treated me kind of like a peer. He didn't treat me like a kid. Um, I got to be like, uh, you know, like a stage manager on a couple of productions and stuff. And uh, before he ended up moving school districts between uh, my sophomore and junior year, um, he had told me he really wanted to like co-direct a, a production with me that he really wanted to get me more involved and it never happened. But I remember thinking it as a kid, that was like such a cool, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like cosign kind of like I, I wanted to write and I wrote stuff and I'd, I'd let him, I'd let him read a play. I wrote that wasn't very good. And he was always very encouraging. And, um, that's like so important in a teacher. And I don't know why I'm going on a tangent about that, but he was a good guy and I hope he's wherever he is. I hope he's doing well. Um, the other one <laughs> is a book I bought a little bit later. It's called Cinematic Storytelling. I don't know who wrote it or whatever, who put it together, but it's just like a wide-ass book. It's like a 2.35 to 1 book, basically. And it has like a 100 or so like various like cinematic techniques and then examples from specific movies with big blown-up stills and stuff. And um, that was really cool to me. It was that That book for me was essentially like every frame of painting, but in book form before I ever, before that channel ever existed. You know what I mean? Like that, that showed me a lot of visual stuff that I was not either. I either did not, wasn't interested in about movies. I, cause like I grew up very much cause I came from it as a writer. I came from it much more about character and plot and stuff like that. That really opened my eyes to like visual storytelling and, and mood and tone and all that type of stuff. So that was really important for me. Um, from more of a construction perspective, Alexander McKendrick, the guy that directed The Lady Killers and The Sweet Smell of Success, is a book called On Filmmaking. Um, I've given this as a gift to aspiring filmmaker friends of mine on multiple occasions. It's a it's a perfect book. It's so rich in detail. There's a whole middle section about the way they rewrote Sweet Smell of Success and like specifically how they made it better from the original version of the script that they had. It, indispensable indispensable resource if you're very serious about film like uh 
I realize I'm listing stuff about about how to make movies versus like stuff that's just broadly about theory, but I always came from from more of like a how-to perspective. So that's a really great book. Uh, another one is Sidney Lumet's Making Movies. Lumet is so cool. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. And I read that book very young and it was um, really formative for me. Another one that's really formative, even though this is less film theory, but I've been putting it on here, is William Goldman's second memoir, Which Lie Did I Tell? And it basically tells his life story in Hollywood from like after misery, I would say up to like whenever the book came out in like the early two thousands. So there's a lot of really great stuff about him working on the movie, the ghost in the darkness. There's stuff about him working on absolute power with a young Tony Gilroy, Uh really good book about screenwriting in general, but he talks about the film industry and story theory and stuff too. It's a really, really great book. It's really funny too. It's really, it's really great. RIP Billy Goldman. Uh, the man who uh, made the maxim, nobody knows anything in Hollywood. He was right. And then a bonus book is David Mamet's On Directing Film, which is like a small book. I think I read it in a Barnes & Noble one day. Like I literally picked it up and it was just flicking through it. And before I knew it, I was done. It's essentially like a lecture or a series of lectures Mamet used to give film students when he was like, I don't know, like guest professoring someplace or whatever. Uh, I don't personally fully subscribe to his specific like ideas about movies, but I feel like they're very good to have in your mind. I feel like you can learn a lot from the way he sees how directing a movie should go. And it teaches you a lot of very basic visual building block things and how to focus on not, not thinking too much about stuff that doesn't matter. Like just like, you know, he was like a screenplay should just be when you're writing, you should write images that can be filmed. You shouldn't be writing like, POV, this person, he has this kind of hair and he looks like this and he thinks like this. And like, it should just be, what can the, what can you film? What can you, what pictures can you put, put in sequence to tell a story and stuff? And, um, he sort of makes making movies sound like the opposite of fun. He makes it sound like math actually, which I've never really jived with, but some of the ideas in there are pretty good. So those are, those are the books I suggest to people. They're all very good. Um, what else? Uh, oh, from my friend Futura. Is there a needle drop song that you are not immune to no matter how lazy it's the usage? Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's two kind of, um, one of them is not even, I can't even think of any very good usage usages of it, but whenever I hear it, I get very excited. And that is, um, be my baby by the Ronettes or any cover of be my baby by the Ronettes. I just love that fucking song. Anytime I hear it in a movie, whatever the context, I'm just like, all right, cool. Movie is okay in my book, even if it's bad. And then, um, this is a really shitty one. This is like a really overused one. But anytime they use Creedence Clearwater Revival's uh, Fortunate Son in a war movie, especially if it's Vietnam, like, it is the fucking laziest, most obvious way to tell people what time period you're in. But it slaps every time. It fucking works. I can't, I can't fault it. I cannot fault it. I can't think of a time where it's bad. I'm just like, well, that's what you do. That's what else you're going to fucking do. Um, at AABB9053 asks, what are some other underappreciated things that have jarred you a la Bradley Cooper knows that I can look up? Uh, I gotta be honest. I don't think anything in recent memory has shocked me as much as seeing the Bradley Cooper prosthetic nose for 
the Leonard Bernstein biopic Maestro. I don't think anything recently has gotten me exactly in that way. I think there are other questionable like choices and stuff like weird haircuts in movies or weird costumes or whatever. Uh, one that comes to mind immediately is like how fucking weird Kevin Spacey looked in all the money in the world before he got canceled and replaced by a real actor. Um, stuff like that. Anytime an actor does weird face shit and, 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 and prosthetic shit, I'm always like, what? Oh, you know what? I got, I got one. Nicole Kidman in the movie destroyer. Karen Kasama made this, uh, movie a few years ago that like, essentially could have been like a season of true detective, but they squished it into a two hour movie and Nicole Kidman's really good in it, but they make her look, I don't want to say they make her look ugly, but they make her look rough in a way that feels distracting. Like they try to make, they give her like a fucking short fucked up haircut. And like, she just looks like, um, somebody tried to erase her face and then didn't blow away the eraser marks. So they're all just kind of around her face. Uh, and, it's so distracting. Like it's a very good performance. It's actually a pretty good movie. I remember very much liking when I saw it, but every few minutes I just be like, why the fuck do they do this? Like you either could have cast someone who looks and feels and has a different presence than Nicole Kidman, or you could have just cast Nicole Kidman, like, and just not put as much makeup on her or something. But like, it's so weird. Like if you look it up, look, just like, I think the poster too, is just like a close up of her face. It's not, uh, you know, the nose, but it's, it's up there. Okay, a question from the homie Justin, who has, I've been referencing like six times in this episode. I love Justin. Love it, Justin. Uh, question for next week. Your thoughts on the new Blade movie and its struggles and how you'd cast plot the movie if it were up to you. Seriously disappointed that they can't get this right. Love you, bro. Love you too. Yeah. Um, I've talked elsewhere. And by elsewhere, I mean in every group chat that I'm in and every conversation someone brings Blade up in. That there is no greater evidence of the failure of the MCU brand that as they've expanded and adapted all of these diverse, random B list, C list, there's a moon Knight show with Oscar Isaac in it. There's all of these different things, right? Like they, they've, they, you know, at one point there was going to be like a free form show with like squirrel girl. Like they've made it so that any Marvel character could theoretically be a big box office success. Right. And yet, the character that basically saved Marvel as a brand in the nineties blade the the Steven Norrington films at like the 25th anniversary, I think with you know, Wesley Snipes, the God, I don't, I don't fucking get it. The only, the only thing I can think is like they're overthinking it, right? Like there's <laughs> everything that I've heard from like the, you know, like the rumors online and stuff. And like, I, I know some people who like, um, you know, like, uh, may or may not be that have been working on the production, um, makes it sound like they're just taking a very simple thing. <laughs> Blade is a vampire. He has all of their strengths, none of their weaknesses. He hates them. He hunts them. He has to shoot up a uh, serum like heroin. So he doesn't drink people's blood. Also, he has a sword and he kicks ass. He's really fucking cool. That's not hard. That's not a fucking complicated concept. The first Blade movie, so good. Blade 2, also really good. Blade Trinity, not very good, but probably better than whatever the MCU is about to come up with. The fact that they're trying to make it like a weird, like, post-HBO Watchmen race thing and stuff. The, the fact they're trying to make it a period piece. Literally, if I had to make a Blade movie for the MCU, it would be like 94 minutes long. It would just be like The Raid, 
but with Blade. It would just be him killing vampires for like an hour and a half. I, I don't even like, when I've been thinking about this, I don't even think about like a specific like, oh, here's my idea and here's the villain and here's the character arc and stuff. I don't think you need anything that deep. It's a very simple, simple thing. Like, just get somebody fucking cool, right? Just a cool black guy who can do martial arts and stuff. Like, if you were doing like a like a Fallen Sons thing where it was Blade as part of an ensemble and a bunch of people, I could see just getting Michael Jai White to do it. Like, if he had to be Blade on a team or Blade with people, I think that that would be really cool. Um, maybe someone would say he's too old, but I mean, I don't think so. And he's just a badass and he's like really cool. And so I, I, that would be interesting to me, him and like sort of, uh, the expendables, but with Marvel's like horror characters, like Werewolf by night and all that stuff and moon Knight or whatever. Like that's how I would go with that version of the character. But if you just wanted to do blade, like a blade movie with blade, blade solo stuff, I don't even think Mahershala Ali is bad for it, but I never thought he was like good for it. Cause it's just like. I don't trust anyone who thought making Green Book was a good idea. I don't care how good he is in True Detective Season 3 or how good he was in Moonlight or everything else. It's just like, that made me think about that guy differently, you know? And uh, I don't know that I would cast him, honestly. I feel like I would just try to get someone who's like a stunt performer or something who can kind of act. Just someone with some presence. You know what I mean? Um, This is going to sound a little bit crazy. But like... Montez Ford, you know, of uh, of the Three Prophets, the WWE star, has such a cool look and a presence and physicality and stuff. I don't know if he could do martial arts and shit like that. And it kind of remains to be seen whether or not he could, like, act to act. But, like, just get a guy who looks cool. Just get a guy who looks cool and has presence. And you dress him cool. You give him cool clothes and stuff. Maybe you get some, like, Cardi songs on the soundtrack. And then you have him kill, like, 4,000 vampires. You just make it like a John Wick thing. Make make the, the, the criminal underworld from John Wick, like all the assassin stuff, make that the way vampires operate. Boom. Done. Done. This is not hard. Um, I don't know if Chad Stahelski is free. Have him directed. As far as a writer, I don't know. Get someone like really fucking big. Get like Brian Helgeland or something. You know what I mean? Like it. Or, or I'm trying to think of another like just like meaty guy screenwriter. Get William Monaghan to write it. Someone who's not going to overthink this shit. Just someone who's going to be like, let's fuck shit up. You know, you got to get like a, like a, just a dude in there. Or like a really cool lady, I guess. I don't know. But it's just, it just, it can't be what they're, what they're making it. It feels like it's never even happened at this point. Like, I don't think that movie's going to get made ever. Strike be damned. Good question though. Thanks bro. <laughs> um, final question, uh, from my friend, Mary June, who I just want to say, it's one of the most gifted writers I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, she's such a good storyteller. She has such attention to detail, so much heart, and she really has a better work ethic than like any other writer right now. Like she's just, she's amazing. Sorry. I just wanted to give MJ her flowers. Speaking of vampire boat movie and someone else here talking about the blade. Yeah. The blade reboot. I have a question for you. Do you have a ranking of fave Dracula portrayals or movie vampires in general? I think I've talked about this elsewhere, and I'm not sure if elsewhere on the armchair auteur brand I've addressed this, but I do love vampires. Uh, I think Dracula is a cool character, but I don't really have, like, I think the Bram Stoker's Dracula is really tight, but I'm much more of an Anne Rice guy, so my favorite vampires in general 
are Tom Cruise's Lestat and Brad Pitt's Louis from 1994 or five? Neil Jordan's Interview with the Vampire. I've not watched the AMC show. I should at some point, but Tom Cruise's Lestat Delancourt is like one of my favorite movie characters ever. And I don't understand people that don't get it. I don't understand people that don't like Interview with the Vampire. When I was in high school and I read all the Anne Rice stuff, I was a huge Anne Rice nerd. I used to write really cringy, really horny vampire fan fiction stuff. Um, there's a girl I had a crush on in my geometry class and I wrote a very weirdly like suggestive vampire story, like inspired by her. I let her read it and it was like maybe the cringiest worst thing I've ever done in my entire fucking life. Uh, but yeah, I really liked vampire shit when I was a teenager. I don't, I don't know why. And I still do. I if I see something with vampires, I'm going to watch it straight up, but no, no, um, my favorite Dracula actually is Eddie Murphy in a vampire, um, uh, the vampire in Brooklyn, which he's not really playing Dracula, but he basically is, uh, really, really great stuff. That movie's severely underrated. I don't care what anybody says. Um, and then yeah, Tom Cruise is Lestat. It's like, it's such a great, it's such a good movie. Interview with the Vampire is like a really good movie. It changes so many things from the book, but like, so <laughs> grow up, um, yeah, I've been meaning to try to figure out how to make a video about that movie for a while, but I don't know what to do about it other than just like, it was turned like a weird thirst of thought about Tom Cruise in that movie, but he's so, so good in it. If you haven't watched that movie in a while, re please revisit it and then tell me he's not the goat. Thanks, MJ. So that does it for this episode. We didn't go too long. We haven't broken the record yet, but thank you guys for listening. And if you're watching this on YouTube, if you like this video, please give it a thumbs up. If you loved it, subscribe, hit the little bell icon so you get notifications when I put out new videos. Uh, hopefully we'll have a new video next week before the next episode of the pod. We might not, uh, but I'm, I'm hoping we will. We'll see what happens. I have a, a weird week ahead of me. And then um, if you are listening to the audio version and you're not watching this on YouTube, uh, please, uh, you know, share with your friends. Uh, try to give me a review on whatever platform you're listening to this on, Apple Music, Spotify or whatever the hell. And, um, yeah. Uh, if you guys have questions for the next week's episode, as always, you can put them in the comments of this video. You can email me at armchairauteur at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Twitter, the IG DMs, wherever the question comes to me, I will find a way to put it on here. So thank you guys again for everything. Um, thank you for supporting the show and, and helping it grow and stuff. I, I really love you guys. So, uh, I'll see you later. I hope everyone's doing well, staying safe, being good to yourselves and each other. Bye.